We will, we were forgiving. <laughs> okay, so I think the next step is we are going to start, I'm Cyrus. I'm Cyrus, this is Natasha, and we are about to have Wilma on mm -hmm. to talk about our next element, which is concentration problems and uh, memory problems and things like this, all these things that happen in trauma. So Wilma, are you, oh, I'm going to unmute her. Wilma, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, it's working. I'm going to get you on the screen if that works. Yes, there you are. Okay. Okay, here I am. So how have you been, Wilma? How, how have you been weathering COVID? You're at home? Oh, we're going a little nuts. We're going a little nuts. My my dear husband is obsessed right now and projecting all of his loneliness of socializing with other people through making coffee mugs. Can you see this? Oh. He, this came out of the kiln this morning. We are, having, we are doing Maple Crest infomercials now. If you would like this coffee mug, there is a limited there is a limited number of coffee mugs. If you would like a coffee mug, order now. No, no, it did, I'm not selling it. Okay. It didn't quite work out. It's gorgeous though, but it didn't quite work out. Anyway, but he's gonna try. He's gonna try it again because it's important. Well, and actually, that's what oh, we're gonna sorry, be talking go about. Okay. Um, well, wait, Wilma, wanna... I'm going to pray for you. Just to, I'm going to pray for you, and then we could get started. Lord, we bless Wilma. We bless her in her home. We say, Lord, speak to Wilma. Give her the words that you have for our church and uh, about this, how to deal with trauma and this particular element of time memory warp and how we get all warped in these times of high stress. And I pray that you just have those I pray that those words would sink into everybody's heart that we would just be able to open ourselves up and take the important points for each of us because there's going to be points for each person and we thank you for her uh, just ministry in this church and leadership so take it away Wilma you will have the screen all to yourself in a second here okay go <laughs> ahead okay thank you Actually, I want to um, introduce us back into the setting of why we're doing this. A long time ago, when our family was hit by violence, our world changed. And we didn't understand how deeply it had changed or how fiercely it had changed. And so we were facing all these issues. And the church often said, well, just get on with it. Just keep on moving. And, uh, and then we'd get together as a group and we'd say, we're going crazy. What is this all about? And over the seven years that we've met and people would come in and go out, we started to identify 15 kind of elements that happen with when we experience violence. And this pandemic is a kind of violence. And so in some ways, we're experimenting with you to see if these elements that we came up with are actually appropriate for this time in this conversation. So I'm going to just go back. We started with story fragmentation. This is where our words and our narrative goes nuts. We've started to talk about fear, and this is an ongoing huge element. Grief displacement, that sadness, that lack of energy at times. And then the huge question of where was God? Where is God now? And does any of this make sense? And can we trust the God that lets a pandemic happen? And of course, when we talk about these things, we do talk about how God is relevant to these elements and how we have to find back our, find our way back through the elements to God. So today we're talking about time memory warp. And I think, Cyrus, in the beginning, you just really <laughs> showed us exactly the craziness of our minds. It robs us of our controls, these kind of moments, and then resulting in an inner chaos. 
and lack of control and a sense of time and memory warp that just goes into feeling crazy. You know, nothing is normal. We would get together as a group, and what we did was we'd say, I think we're going crazy. And we'd all agree they were all going crazy. And then we would say, well, this is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. And by normalizing it, we were able to then deal with the problem and isolate it. So going crazy is about our inability to organize our thoughts, navigate the day. It's also results in memory loss because we're absorbed in so many different things. A sense of timing. All of a sudden, things would go really fast. And then all of a sudden, everything would slow down almost into a, a movie-like slow motion moment. The biggest part of this is we couldn't plan for the future. And if you can't plan for the future, you can't budget, you can't diet, you can't create goals. You, you're just lost in this moment of past and, and a bit of present, but mainly in the past. And so there's this, this inability to, to plan. And our minds are cycling and they're looking for answers. And you can, we can't concentrate, we can't focus. You know, you would think at this time that people would really be able to read. Well, I think some can but some won't be able to because we can't concentrate. And so in some ways, our mind is cycling, our lives are going crazy, and then that in itself is a, is a, a panic. Am I going crazy? Do I, do I need to go to, uh, um, am I, is this a disorder? Or really, it's normal. One thing that happens is that we found that we were reckless at this time. Cliff and I started to rack up traffic tickets. We just drove around the city in a craziness. We were always, we're law-abiding citizens. So for us to have all these traffic tickets, and then Cliff even had to go in for a retest. It was that bad. And what is that about? And there's a lot of people that have accidents. We got together as a group, and we would say, you know, it's not just the primary trauma that we're dealing with. We're dealing with all these accumulated losses. And as we start to examine those losses, we realize a lot of it was because of the trauma of the moment, reckless behavior, being absorbed, not being able to time things. We would not go to meetings that we had planned and things like that. So it was a loss of, of functioning that was really alarming as well. So when we think it all over, it's our fear of death can actually make us want to escape more. We, we, we want this life more than ever. We realize how important it is. And yet our reactions can be very reckless and very, um, very dangerous. It's called catastrophic thinking, where we are extremes. So what? How do we deal with this? And, and, and this this reality of things that are coming, seemingly coming to an end. You know, this happened with Jesus when people came. They said, "You know, a little girl has died, and you weren't there." And then he said, "No, she's not dead. She's just asleep." And then the Bible says. They laughed at him. They couldn't see what he was saying, is that your reality isn't really what you're thinking. There is hope. She is alive. And that's the, the message of today. And, and it really takes faith. It really takes a great deal of faith to say, you know what? The reality that I'm seeing right now is temporary. God says that we are alive. We will stay alive. And we can be alive even in our chaos and in our craziness. It takes faith, like a small small, tiny mustard seed. Oh, there were moments when we thought everything was gone, just everything. And yet it was just saying, okay, God, help. Even that prayer of God, help me, 
says that there's a God and there's help and there's hope. Actually, the verse that came to me during this time and was because I was so catastrophic in my thinking, I'd look at the Bible and it was inaccessible. Anything, anything really important like information and instructions were inaccessible to me because I couldn't think. Except there's one verse. It says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 13, it says, when there's nothing left, when everything feels like it's falling apart, remember there's three things that remain, and we can all remember three things, faith, hope, and love. We need to have faith in God. We need to have hope that we're going to see our way. God, God might not show us the end, but he does give us just enough sight to see what's in the next immediate future. And then love. We have to remember that even if we can't touch and hug each other, we need to continue to hold each other in love and prayers. Thank you. Thank you, Wilma. Thank you. That's amazing. I wanted to point out here that um, you, I'm going to put it up here. You won't be able to see it, but I can see it and everybody else can see it. You now have... An order for your mug. <laughs> I think we're in a new business. I think that we should we're, we should pursue this uh, and uh, <laughs> tell Cliff you'll be really happy. Oh, that's good. Thank you, Wilma. Those are powerful words. I think that we are really speaking to the moment right now about how uh, people just are in a different kind of state and are experiencing something new. Would you be able to pray for me, Wilma? And then uh, I'll get started with, uh, with my part. Oh, dear God. Oh, we're in this moment. And we just need to hear words from you. So we just pray for Cyrus and his family, that they stay strong and they stay wonderful examples of just moving ahead in their lives. And Lord, now I just pray that you'll fill Cyrus with your spirit that he will find the words to express what's in his heart because we need to hear from you this, at this time. Mm -hmm. Lord, bless, bless Cyrus and thank you. Thank you for his work and his service. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Wilma. Have a great day. Uh, thank you. You too. Okay. We'll see you later. Uh, let's see. Okay. I think I've done everything right. Everybody can hear me. Okay, so we're going to talk now about uh, this uh, time memory warp, just following up on what Wilma was saying and um, everything. Uh, let's close that. Yeah, everything that Wilma was saying about this. Uh, it's amazing how much of an effect it has on people. And the car accident thing is interesting. I didn't know that Dad had to take a retest. Cliff had to take a retest. Uh, so we were kind of giggling about that a little bit. We'll have to talk to him about that later. Because um, he actually was like a delivery like driver, professional driver uh, later on. Anyway. Um, and But it's something that we actually see quite a bit of. Uh, I'm a psychologist. And we see people uh, having difficulty with driving sometimes. Uh, you know, pretty serious challenges and having you know accident after accident after accident we actually have it on our history form now we have it actually in its own category how many accidents have you had as a little memory sorry as a little test of where people are at with their concentration um and it's just so true that when people have experienced stress when they've experienced something really serious that uh, they can concentrate but they can't concentrate on certain things uh they have a lot of energy they have a lot of um uh, they have a lot of 
push and adrenaline in order to be able to focus on something and able to do it, but they can't actually think deeply. They can't think in a way that, um, that uh, that's apart from the main thing that they're focused on here. I'll give you an example. When I was younger, uh, I was playing baseball and um, I, one time, I think it was like playoffs. I'm not sure. I was, I was pretty young and I was running around the bases, uh, or I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but at the end, the story kind of picks up. I was on third base and I was running to the home plate. I can't really remember anything else about the game other than it must've been really important to me because as I was running, um, from third base to the home, home base, I was running as hard as I could and it was really important. And I actually experienced tunnel vision. Now I thought tunnel vision was kind of like a metaphor or I, th I think often people talk about it like a metaphor, like just like you're so focused on something you don't notice other things. Well, this was actually literal. Like it was um, a literal tunnel vision. Like the, everything went actually black uh, around in my vision and I couldn't see, not that I was trying to see, but I couldn't see um, my peripheral at all anymore. And it felt a little bit like I was watching a movie, like there were black bars or something like that, just on the top and bottom and sides. And, um, and then I was running towards home plate and it almost felt also like time slowed down. Like I was running slower. I knew I wasn't running slower. Um, but it felt like I was almost just a touch running slower than normal. And I was kind of wishing, obviously this was a big moment and I was wishing that I could get there faster and like, why can't I run faster? And, um, and I just remember that moment. I actually don't remember if I was, if I got the point or not. Um, but I, I remember that moment because it was just so vivid and literal and physical. Like it was actually uh, a moment where reality changed for me. It slowed down and my vision actually changed though my brain focused so much that it just kind of deleted everything else rather than like typically you focus on something you pay attention to something in your vision um but everything else is still there and this was a moment where it was actually just went black all around and that would be kind of a, a form of dissociation where you are separating yourself from reality there's two kinds there's uh, you know depersonalization where you're like out of your body or you don't feel like yourself or derealization where reality seems different. Like maybe you're looking at it through a television screen, watching your life on a television screen or something like that. And so this was kind of a form of that. There are lots of different forms and, and looks and feelings to, um, to dissociation. And what happens in it is you can focus on one thing. I was focused on home plate and I couldn't focus on anything else. And all that deep thought that I would normally have, the deep feelings, the deep, uh, deeper creativity, there was nothing creative about that moment. Um, but I was focused, I was paying attention. So you can pay attention, but you can only pay attention to one thing and everything else kind of fades away. You you become myopic in a way. Like, I'll, I'll give you an example. If you were working on a computer and you were in this state, you might not be able to solve the computer problem, but you maybe still want to solve it and you have a lot of energy to solve it. But maybe the only answer you can think of is a hammer in that moment. Like, maybe I'll just destroy this computer. People start hitting things, you know, like it's, I have a lot of energy for this. I have a lot of focus on the fact that I can't make my computer work, but it has to work right now. I'm in this hugely adrenaline, uh, frustrated moment. Um, but the only thing I can really think to do is hit it because I can't think deeply anymore. I can't work on actually solving this problem. And... Um, so that's what people enter into. And when they enter into trauma, when they go, you know, this time memory warp, bigger thing, uh, like this happens to all of us, like if we're, if we're stressed or something like that in the moment, but if you trauma is something that will loop and will kind of continue on for longer periods of time and people will like, you know, Wilma was saying have car accidents or 
won't be able to read or or have like various signs of it. Sometimes they can't even watch a movie. A high stimulate, highly stimulating activity like watching a movie that's designed to capture your attention and, and give you that feedback and you you can't even watch television or listen to music. I have people who come in and they are they listen to music but they listen to it with the volume like pumped up as much as they can like they're going to go deaf because they have it so loud in order to to fight through the focus that they have. It's like imagine somebody you know, focusing on home base all the time, they're tunnel visioned, focusing on that all the time. And they're trying to relieve it and trying to think of something else. So they play music really loudly to try to break through those black bars on the side in order to actually change their focus. Um, and so real concentration problems can result from this. And, and again, there's always these individual differences. Um, but it can really affect people. And it can be upsetting because it's like what's happening to me why can't I do the things I normally do and they can feel like there's something really wrong with them like this is really unnatural and I'm, don't get me wrong if this happens for a long period of time when there's no actual threat that's when you start talking about kind of a you know a problematic reaction but in the moment when you are experiencing this stress it's actually a very natural response and usually helpful um, it's supposed to be helpful so that's what we want to talk about today we want to talk about how God responds to you when you're like this because everybody's going to be like this at some point how does god respond to you when you're experiencing this either for a short time or for a long time when you can't think logically anymore when you are focused on one thing and the rest kind of goes black and you can't enter into deep thought so i want to talk about how god responds to that because i think it's really interesting and I want to talk a little bit about how to prevent it. Um, the, usually the, the number one way that we prevent it or that we work our way through it is by making things automatic. We want to make it so that it's just, that it doesn't require deep thought because deep thought isn't happening at that moment. We uh, make it, um, we make it automatic. We make it like superficial thought. Like I don't really need to think deeply about this because it's just a, a quick thought. I just have to think, do that. And it will happen. I don't have to think about how to do it. I don't have to think about how to solve the problem. I'll give you an example. People have to perform. Um, I might learn how to, how to play the piano. I might learn how to play a song on the piano. And I might need my brain to be working like this much in order to be able to play that song. But if I put an audience there, and let's say the audience is stressful for me, like that's a stressful thing. I, I might go into this state where I can't think deeply anymore. And so in order to overcome that, if I make this song automatic, like so it doesn't require this much thought, it only requires this much thought, I can still play it well. But if it requires like really deep thought and I give myself an audience, all of a sudden I'm going to start making mistakes if, that's, if that place is stressful. So you have to overlearn the song. You have to learn it to a point where you don't have to think anymore, where it just becomes automatic. And then... If you're automatic, you can put an audience there, you're focused on the audience, but you don't really need much of your brain to actually play the song because it's automatic. And this is what they do with soldiers. Um, soldiers are drilled so that they can do complex things, things that look like they require a lot of thought, automatically. Like if you go to and do martial arts, can anybody punch? Sure, everybody can punch. Uh, but if you want to be able to do something in a stressful moment, quickly, without a lot of thought, you have to make it automatic, which is why people in martial arts will practice in something, overlearn it, overlearn it, and overlearn it. I think I gave the example one time, a long time ago, about how I had taken martial arts when I was a kid, and then some kid came running at me, and I didn't think. I just pushed him to the side, very gently. I was very gentle. And 
lifted my knee and all of a sudden he was on the ground, you know, and um, it was just automatic. It was automatic. And, uh, and that's what that martial arts had trained me to do, uh, to create that thing. So that's one way that we learn to manage stress and that can apply to faith as well. The other thing is to make it not stressful. So either I can overlearn the song and then I enter a stressful audience and, um, and I can still do it because it's automatic or I learn how to make an audience not stressful anymore. I kind of make it so that an audience, they're all my friends or something like this. And then all of a sudden the audience isn't stressful and I can play the song with deep thought because I'm still accessing deep thought. So you make it so it doesn't matter. It's not stressful. It, and that's the other way to manage it. Uh, those are the two main ways. And if we're living in the kingdom, if we're living from you know heaven down and we're thinking about things as God th thinks about them, we're probably not going to be as stressed when we encounter things because we'll just be thinking about it from God's perspective and God's relaxed so we won't have to be stressed and so so many things we'll actually be able to think deeply about it because we're trusting in god we're having faith in god so both those are like the two main ways to deal with this one make it automatic two make it not stressful by changing your perspective on the situation or 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 something like that if you get really comfortable with audiences then all of a sudden you can start using more of your mind in that situation and it's not a big deal and you can play songs that maybe you don't know as well um because you're not you're not as stressed. So just don't enter the crisis. Um, and, and there's scriptures about this. Like, um, if you, um, make yourself deep in the Lord, if you make those responses automatic, um, like if you're a seed and your seed and your, and your roots go down deep, you're going to be okay when the drought comes. Like it's almost expected. It's, oh, I've got like the pastor. I've got like the five pastor. devices here. His phone. Is off. <laughs> oh. I'm surrounded by Mac. <laughs> and anyway, okay, I think we're good now. What was I saying? Is anybody listening? Uh, when you're surrounded. Yeah. Wait. What? When you're surrounded by what? Oh, the seed. So if you are like, we're all going to go through something really challenging. And when that sun hits or when that difficulty comes, is your, are you shallow? Like, are, are your roots shallow? In which case you're going to die. Like it's the plant's going to die in the analogy. Or are your roots down deep? Um, which kind of speaks to this idea of kind of your responses to God are practiced. Your responses to God are trained. You've played the piano a lot. And so these things are deep. They're, they're, uh, they're something that you can rely on, even when the world isn't uh, functioning really well. Um, sorry, the doorbell just rang. The joys of, <laughs> of the basement in your home when you're doing these things. Um, so yeah, don't enter the crisis. Make it automatic. Okay, the next thing is, um, even if you make it automatic, even if you're looking from heaven's perspective, and you're just like a really like your roots have gone down deep. It's very likely that in your lifetime, God will bring you to a point where you can't think anymore. It's just the way it is. Uh, it's very likely. I think it probably would happen less if you did these things, if you made it automatic, if you know, you brought yourself down to a, you know, a deep place and you kind of learned to deal with stuff and you thought about it from kingdom's perspective, it's going to happen less, but I believe that everybody, I, I almost feel like it's a, not a law, like I'm not in charge of these things and I don't know exactly what God is doing in everybody's life, but I almost feel like when I read the stories of the Bible, it seems like everybody is taken to that point at some point in their life. At some point, they are taken to this place where they just can't 
do it on their own. They can't function on their own uh, without needing something greater than themselves. And um, I think one of the one of the places that gives me the greatest solace for this is when I think of the Garden of Gethsemane, because that's what actually happens to Jesus. He's taken to a place beyond his humanity where he can't cope on his own anymore. I mean, if you want to know about Jesus being fully human and fully God, but fully the fully human part, you can look at the Garden of Gethsemane and you can really see how um, this was a reality for him, where he was actually a human and he was not able to cope, uh, at least not on his own. So I'll read it to you. Uh, This is Luke 22, verse uh, 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed and said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So this is a moment where, even though he's prophesied it, I mean, Jesus knows what's going on. Like, he is aware that this is something that um, is going to happen. But in this moment, he's like, is there a way, Lord? Is there a way to actually not have to do this? Because it's overwhelming. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven to strengthen him. So was he able to cope with this on his own? I don't think so. Because God felt the need to actually send an angel to strengthen him. He got to the point where he was completely dependent on God. Not that he wasn't before, but it becomes quite clear that he can't, his human brain can't cope with the amount of stress that's actually being put on him. And he actually needs real, like, spiritual assistance to deal with some an emotional reality, to deal with this stress in that moment. And an angel comes to strengthen him, not with food, He's not hungry, not with water, but emotionally. He can't deal with it anymore. His brain can't function. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So this is how much stress he was under. His his physical form was under that much stress um, that he was unable to cope without a heavenly intervention. And um, I think that's amazing, just to see the humanity the human side of Jesus, and it makes me feel better about getting to the end of myself, because it says, like, when you get to the end of yourself, first of all, there's only so much that your physical form can do. You need to be spiritually dependent, otherwise you're not going to be able to cope. So even though you get to the end of your physical uh, abilities, and you can't cope anymore, that's not condemnation. That's just reality. That's what happens uh, to all of us at some point. And... Um, you can see the the automatic of like, but your will be done. It's I, I feel like it's something practiced for Jesus. It's something developed in his history with the Lord where it's like, your will be done. It's just automatic. I don't even know if I can do this. I can't function with the knowledge that I have to do this. I'm sweating blood here, but your will be done. That's the automatic piano playing. It's just like, oh, your will be done. And he's praying in earnest and the God sends an angel to kind of make the difference. The other example um, is Elijah. Elijah has a really nice example of, uh, of a human, a very powerful, devoted human who has come to the end of themselves. So, I mean, if you don't know the story of Elijah, um, it's, it's a great story. I recommend it. Um, and in 1 Kings uh, 18 and 19, you can see um, Elijah confronting these prophets of Baal um, and having this showdown, you know, where he... God comes and lights up this altar and doesn't do it for the prophets and the prophets are killed. 
And then after this huge courageous act, and a lot of preachers will talk about this, and that's fine. Um, this after this huge courageous act, he becomes afraid and he runs. Uh, after Jezebel, the queen threatens him, and he runs and he hides. And um, I think that the way that God speaks to him in that moment, when he's afraid and he knows it's not great, um, and he knows that he. Um, he says, actually, here in one part, he says, um, I am no better than my father's. He knows that this isn't a good situation. And um, I'll read it here in uh, chapter 19, verse 4. But he came, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life away. For I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree. And, um, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was uh, at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again for a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that for 40 days and nights to Horeb, the Mount of the Lord. And then in verse 9, There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, Where are you? Oh, sorry. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Um, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets, with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord, and he said, go out and stand in the, uh, on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, and when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Basically says the same thing. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, even I only am left, and seek my, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and uh, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, uh, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet... I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Okay, so why did I read all of that? Well, I think it's great. But I want to explain it because I think this is actually a model of how to deal with trauma, of how God deals with trauma uh, when we're experiencing it. So I want you to know how this works because he might deal with you and how people can help you or how you can help other people. Um, so Elijah's in this place, right, where he's run off and he's on his own he knows he's messed up and he's he's not feeling great and he's feeling 
all of this, like, people are seeking my life, I'm the only one, it's overwhelming, I can't function anymore. And I want you to, I want to take you through what God says to him, because it's really interesting if you think about it in a certain way. The first thing that he says is, um, or one of the first things he says is, I'm really big. He says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed in a great and strong wind. He starts to, by showing his strength, he says, I'm a big God. And he gets his attention. I'm comes in the strong wind, comes in the earthquake, and he comes in the fire. And can you imagine that? I mean, it's like Moses on the mountain. Um, and I think actually there's a, a parallel there of like a renewing of a call, because I think Elijah's walking away from his call here. And it's kind of like this renewal of the call of uh, into ministry. And that's one part of it. I think another part of it is like, pay attention. Look at me. And when I'm talking with somebody in trauma, it's actually quite difficult to get their attention. It's quite difficult to pull them away from what they're thinking. Um, because in that same like tunnel vision, they're just focused on one thing. And to pull them out of that, to actually focus on the bigger picture, to focus on the other things that are going on is quite challenging. And God kind of just snap and takes him out of that very, very like focused tunnel vision on everything. And um, when he does that, when he takes him out, then he's able to talk to him in a whisper. And people in trauma can't hear whispers. They, you want to help them to focus their mind and to be able to concentrate and to be able to focus on something quiet so they're not having to blare the music. So God blares the music to get his attention and then he says, are you listening? And then he, then he whispers, I, I need you to calm down, Elijah. I need to speak to you quietly because we need to be in a quiet space so that you can actually process what I'm going to say to you because I asked you a question and I asked you again and you're saying the same thing. You're not processing. Like, what are you doing, Elijah? I need to tell you who you are again. You're just repeating yourself. You, you know this isn't a good place and I need you to think deeply about this. So I'm going to whisper to you. And we need to get into that place where we can hear God's whisper again, where we can think deeply. And I think it's so great what the Lord says to him once he has his attention. First is calm down, because then that's the whisper. Like, calm down. Think deeply. Focus on me. You need to hear the whisper. It's fine to talk in the, in the fire. I don't have any problem with the fire or the wind or the earthquake. It's not about what voice is better. It's just like, this is the voice that Elijah needs right now. He needs the whisper voice and he needs to be able to hear the whisper voice. And so he says, calm down. And then he tries to give him a reality question to try and get him into his logical mind and out of his emotional mind. And he says, what are you doing? Which is something that you can do in order to get somebody out of their emotional mind and into their logic is like, what are you doing right now? Rather than how are you feeling? It's just like, what day of the week is it? Can you like, what's two plus two? Can you please enter into your logical mind? Uh, what are you doing? And then what God does is he gives clear direction, very similar to this logical mind. He gives very clear direction. He says, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. So it's just like very concrete. It's not like a deep philosophical conversation. He's just like, go here. It's like, Elijah, you can't process anything right now. So I'm just going to talk to you about where you need to go. You need to go to Damascus. And then he starts talking about safety. He's like, these are, it's like reality and safety. These are, and then there's one more I'll talk about in a minute. Reality is like, what are you doing? Go to Damascus. And then safety. The safety is the next part. 
When you get to Damascus, when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel, king over Syria, and Jehu, son of Nimshi, and you shall anoint him king over Israel. You don't have to deal with these kings anymore. You're going to get a new king. I'm going to give you a new king. And you don't have to deal with Jezebel anymore, okay? It's, I'm going to make it safe for you. You are. I'm going to actually shape this nation right now so that you can be okay. I love you, Ezekiel. We're going we're gonna to make this better. You can just hear it. I'm going to give you a new king, a king you don't have to run away from, a king you don't have to, who's not trying to seek your life. And then he goes to community and he says, um, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. I'm going to give you some help. So it's like, I'm going to give you a new king and you're going to have Elisha now. You're not going to have to do this on your own anymore. Don't worry. I'm going to make it safe for you. You get help. Help is going to come. So safety and help. And then he goes back to safety. And he says, The one who escapes from Hazel shall Jehu put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. So if Elisha's putting to death and he's actually going to be the next prophet, we know that these are bad people who are getting put to death. So he's like, I'm going to actually make these people right. And the people who escape are going to be taken care of. Like, it's all going to be taken care of. These are going to be good kings who are taking care of justice. We're going to put a new police in, in place, and they're actually going to be good police. Like, this isn't going to be a corrupt police force. They're actually going to take care of things. So you're going to anoint them as king. You're going to get help. They're going to be good kings, and that help is actually going to help you. And then he talks about community again. And he says, you're not alone. He says, you will leave seven... Uh, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees who have not bowed to Baal and every mouth who has not kissed him. So he's saying, I am going to give you a bigger community. I'm not just going to give you Elisha, but you're not going to be alone. There's actually going to be 7,000 other people. You're not alone. It's going to be okay. So we have this amazing message of like, pay attention, pay attention to me. Now think deeply. Now that I have your attention, we're going to give you a good king. You're not going to be alone. You're safe. You're okay. Go to Damascus. It's so caring. Just like, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. It's like, he knows that your brain isn't working anymore. And it's not rebellion that put Elijah in, in this place. He, said, he gave him an angel and said, here's some bread, here's some water. You're not functioning properly. He could see the weakness and he made up for it. And then he said, you know what? I'm going to make this easier on you. You don't have to deal with this anymore. You've done enough. You've done enough. Just be calm. Be at peace. I'm going to make it all okay. And right after that, the next verse, he says, So he, Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And then it talks about how he called Elisha. And then he rose, Elisha rose, and went after Elijah and assisted him. The next passage is about Elisha, not replacing him. I mean, it might sound like you're fired. It's not like you're fired. It's more like, I'm going to give you somebody. And right, the next passage is about Elijah going and getting help. It's like, you need to get help. You need some community around you. You don't have to do this alone anymore. We have pushed you to the end of yourself. And now I'm going to take you back. You didn't, you didn't rebel. And I am going to now take it back. And it's going to be okay. I'm going to make it okay for you. Because... You're just a human being and you have just a brain and that's not going to be able to function in every moment that I give you. And um, so I'm going to make it okay for you and I'm going to give you somebody else to do this with you. Hmm. 
God knows that we're dust. He knows that we can't process things. When you go to a nursing care home or old age home, you can see people who just can't process things anymore. And we become aware of how they can't process things anymore. Uh, we become aware that they can't remember, that they're not in reality anymore. And we can feel in ourselves, God's not going to judge you for this. Like, you're doing stuff now that you wouldn't have done when you were in your right mind. Yeah, God knows that this is like a disease process in your brain. He knows that this is old age and this is not you anymore. Like he, And we can feel that. We can get that. Um, well, just imagine God walking onto the earth. That's like him walking into the nursing home and being like, I know that you guys are just dust. Like you guys, we can't process God on the best day. Like when you are fully functioning, you can't process God on the best day. Like it's not going to happen. You can't. You can't process fully what's happening with God, even when you're in your right mind, even when you're not traumatized, even when you can concentrate and you're like doing well and you can take the test and everything. You can't function then. It's like God's walking in the nursing home and be like, you think you can do stuff? It's like, that's cute. It's like, you you can hardly hold anything of me right now. You can hardly hold anything. And then we become compromised and we're like, oh my goodness, I can't think properly anymore. And he's like, you can think like like a little worse your thinking is a little worse than where you were before like but i had to make up a lot of difference before and i'll make up the difference now like you're still human you're still dust and i'm gonna make up that extra space don't worry i had to do it before you didn't realize it but i had to like i had to understand that you didn't get me properly and you were doing all kinds of things that were super offensive and i had to just look over them because it's like you're just a human being and i only gave you so much and i know how much i gave you so whatever, like, we'll just figure it out. And and now you know less and you can feel that difference, but don't worry, like, I can make up the difference between this two. Just like with grandpa or grandma or great grandpa or grandpa, like, I, I'm making up the difference for them. I'm going to make up the difference for you. Don't worry about it. And I have a call for you that's probably beyond what you can do. Uh, I have a call for you that is beyond that. And when that happens, when you get to the end of yourself, I'm going to help you. I'm going to get, send an angel. He sent an angel to Jesus. He sent an angel to Elijah. He's going to send help. Because sometimes God has things to do that are just beyond us. And it's just like, I got something to do. And you're the one I picked to do it. And you can't do it. So here we go. Like, let's, like we're going to do it. But I'll make up the difference because you can't do this. And I know you can't do it. Um, and when that, when that happens, he'll send the angel. Jesus even needed an angel to do what he called that human frame to do. But he had to do it, and so he made up the difference. And he repeats the calling. When Jesus was praying, the calling is repeated. The angel comes to strengthen him. It's like, yeah, you got to do it. The calling is repeated to Elijah when it's like, you've got to go and do this. You've got to still go anoint kings. You've still got stuff to do. You have to go and do this, but I'm going to help you. I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send an angel when you're in the desert and you're not eating properly. And I'm actually going to send you a helper, Elisha, to help you do this now because I know you can't do it in your own strength. So he repeats the calling. He sends an angel. You don't have to figure all of this out. You have to figure out as much as you can. I'm not saying that it's like, oh, God's going to figure it all out. And it's like, no, he knows what you can do. And so you should do what you can do because he knows how much that is. And he's going to ask you to do what you can do. But he also knows what you can't. And he knows that better than we know it ourselves. And... So when you get to that place, you can be like, God, I don't think I can do this. And he'll send an angel because he loves you.
He might not send an angel that you can see. He might not do it in a way that's obvious. You might not actually be at the end of yourself. And he's like, you can actually do a little more. And he might actually push you because he knows. But I can guarantee it that if you are actually at the end of yourself and he has more of a calling to do, he will make up the difference because he's a good God. So I'm going to guarantee it to you that God will either only give you what you can do or if he asks you for more, he will send help. He will send help. Hmm. I just love this. The Lord came, and the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Arise and eat. The angel comes. Arise and eat. The journey is too great for you. Why would God give him a journey that's too great for him? Because he sent an angel. So, Lord, I just pray for everybody right now. Arise and eat. For the journey is too great for you. Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Oh, 